0: So with that, I'm going to get into the lecture. This is going to be a technical lecture where, with intent, no God, gods or intelligent designer will be mentioned. Science is going to be used to critique scientific research. Scientific research, science can be used to critique things. We don't have to bring God into this. We don't have to bring an external designer into this. And then at the end, when I'm done with that, I will then go back into talking about God and particularly Jesus Christ, but you will see that science can stand on its own. So for those who might want to contest and say, oh, I had to bring religion into this in order to talk about problems with origin of life research, I don't have to bring God into this at all. Science is quite able to deal with this, and that's what you'll see. What is the origin of life? Well, this is a cell, so this is what we've got to deal with. This is the smallest entity we can have to have something that's really living as we we think about it. And a cell is an utter factory. It is an absolutely amazing machine. It transfers information, it transfers matter, it has energy systems, it has storage systems, it has information systems, information systems that go far beyond just DNA. Information systems in RNA, information systems in the lipid bilayers, as we heard this morning, and also information systems in the carbohydrates that are there. So there's many more information systems, information storage systems than just DNA and RNA. This is what we've got to do. How do you build the first cell? You want to make life, you've got to make the first cell. That's what origin of life is about. It's prebiotic. Before biology was around, how did you take molecules and have them come together to make the first life? And you say, well, the life came here from some other planet. It was seated here. Fine. I'm okay with that. But that just begs the question, where did that life come from? This is the origin of first life. Where did it come from? <clears throat> Molecules don't care about life. Organisms care about life. Chemistry, on the contrary, is utterly indifferent to life. Without a biologically derived entity acting upon them, molecules have never been shown to evolve toward life. Never. And if anybody ever tells you any different, they don't know or they are lying. It's never been done. Never. Molecules don't move toward life. just doesn't happen. Now I know this is a friendly audience. Some people say, you know, I, I come I come into these <laughs> the, these talks and my 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 you know my fists are just doubled up. Well, I've, I've just had so many so many uh, 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 spoiled vegetables thrown at me over the years that, that I, I I just come in a bit like this. So, but <laughs> I'm really a nice person. <laughs> after the talk, all right. Almost every chemical synthesis experiment, origin of life, can be summed up by this protocol. So many people will say, well, what about this one? And they'll send me a link to it. What about this one? They all fall into this, all right? Anything you send me can fall into this. You purchase some chemicals generally in high purity from a chemical company. You mix those chemicals together in water in high concentrations or in a specific order under some set of carefully devised conditions in a modern laboratory. You obtain a mixture of compounds that have resemblance to one or more of the four basic classes of chemicals needed for life, which are carbohydrates, nucleic acids, amino acids, or lipids. You publish a paper making bold assertions about origin of life from these functionless crude mixtures of stereochemically scrambled intermediates, much like Miller did in 1952. Engage the ever-gullible press to dial up the knob of unjustifiable extrapolations, watch the mesmerized layperson exclaim, you see, scientists understand how life was formed, encourage a generation of science textbook writers to make colorful, deceptive cartoons of raw chemicals assembling into cells, which then emerge as slithering creatures from a prehistoric pond. All right? Whatever you send me will fit into this. They all fit into this. <clears throat> Here's the synthesis problem. Just to make the molecules, you've got to make those four classes of molecules. Molecules that compose living systems almost always show homochirality. That means you have a left-handed and a right-handed possibility. You only see one of the two. Very hard to do that in a modern laboratory. But molecules in living systems almost always show homochirality. When building molecular systems, constant redesigns are needed that take you back to step one. It's once you've gotten to a certain step, if you put the wrong thing on a molecule, you very often can't take it off. You've got to go all the way back to step one. That's a synthesis problem. How does that happen in a prebiotic world where where this thing is marching along and it's, "Uh uh-oh, I put a wrong group on there. Well, how do I know I put a wrong group? I don't even know where I'm going. It's it's going toward a target that it doesn't even know what it's going to because molecules don't tend toward life. You see the problem. It's going toward something it doesn't know what it's going to, or tell a chemist, go ahead, hire a chemist and say, I want you to synthesize something. I have something in my mind, but I'm not gonna tell you what it is, but you are to synthesize it. They're gonna think, you're, you're crazy. You're just crazy. Yes, that is insane. When you don't have a target to go toward, it's hard enough to make something that's a target, especially that target is a living thing. The synthetic reactions don't know how to stop their current course of progression or why to stop, because there's no target to go. Time, although claimed to be the great savior of abiogenesis, can actually be the enemy. For example, carbohydrates are a kinetic product. They caramelize or they undergo the Kanazara reaction. In other words, chemists will do a reaction and as soon as that reaction is done, you work it up. You have to stop that thing or it decomposes. Go ahead, put a cake in the oven and go away on vacation for a week. What's, What's wrong with that? What's wrong? I mean, time can only help, right? Time helps. Time's good. No, things decompose. That's what happens when you have what are called kinetic products. They decompose. A prebiotic system does not have the ability to easily purify structures. If you don't purify, what happens is your reaction gets, gets gummed up with many structures that you don't want. And that consumes the starting materials for the next step, and it inhibits the following reactions. That's why chemists do a step, they purify. They do a step, they purify. How do you purify in a prebiotic world, it's very hard to know how to do that. You say, well, it crystallized out of solution. Okay, and then how about the next step? Did that crystallize out of? It? It's hard to get crystals out of solution. And then how did it, and then it just happened to dissolve when it had to go to the next step? Reagent order addition is essential. You're baking a cake, you got the eggs, you got the flour you, and, and uh, uh, you say, well, I, I think I'll just add the icing now. No, you can't do that. There's a prescribed order. Chemistry is far more prescribed than cooking. How does that happen? Well, you know, something leaked into a cave then, and then this one leaked in, and that Again, and again, and again, and again, in the right order. One thing gets out of order. It's all done for. The parameters of temperature, pressure, solvent, light, or no light, atmospheric gases, or no gases, have to be carefully controlled in order to build complex molecular structure. There's no other way to do this. The characterization step at each... The characterization at each step is essential for the chemist, but hard on the prebiotic world. In biology, what happens is that something is made and enzymes check its structure. If it's not the right structure, the enzymes chop it up. Even if it's the wrong structure by mirror image, very hard to, to know that it will put, it makes these glove-like systems that fit over it that check the structure. If it's not right, boom, it chops it up. Why? You have to take it out of the reaction mixture. That's in a biotic world. But in a prebiotic world, how does it happen? We have no idea how characterization was done, but you have to have characterization to do synthesis because you've got to make sure if you go from A to B that you really have B before you can go on to C. Characterization is difficult. We have no idea how this was done. Mass transfer problem would kill, be the killer of all roots. You take starting material in a laboratory. You go five steps in. Jonah, where are you? Jonah. He went home. Oh, what's his excuse? He just has a new baby. I mean, come on. (laughs) Talking about important things here. So what happens is he he told me his students can only take a reaction five steps, no further. Why? What happens? You run out of starting material. And then you got to go back and make more. What happens when this reaction's been going along for 300 million years? It's like, uh uh-oh, I'm out of starting material. Well, I, I think I'll go back and make more. But i got a problem. I don't know how to go back because I never kept a laboratory notebook. So it didn't know how it got there. So you can't go back and make more starting material. Every chemist is constantly bringing up starting material, looking carefully through their notebooks on how they did it, how they had optimized that the first time. Nature keeps no laboratory notebooks, so it can't go back. This is how we made some of the motors for the nano cars. Just if you look at this one step here, how we're going to go from this compound to this compound, just this one step here. And if we look at this reaction chemistry, it's quite complex of what we have to do to bring you through this one step from here. You add these reagents, you get an intermediate, then you add another reagent, and boom, then you isolate here. <clears throat> so this is the procedure. <clears throat> this is a shortened procedure that a chemist could understand. To an oven dried, it has to be oven dried, very carefully dried, three neck, round bottom flask, charged with hydrozone 33... This amount and mag sulfate, that amount was added dichloromethane to this su- suspension was quickly added manganese oxide and this amount at about five degrees, then you cool it from minus 15 to minus 10 for 1.5 hours and then cool it to minus 50, transfer it, and then you, you, you cool that again, you cool that back down, pre-cooled solution at minus 50 until the nitrogen evolves and then you let it warm up. Well, why do we go through all these temperature changes? Because we just like cooling things and stuff like that. No, you have to. You have to do chemistry like that. That's what's involved in doing synthetic chemistry. Nature would have to do that too. Well, it it, it was on the side of the volcano and it got out. And then we it, it went into this cold pool on the edge of this volcano. Okay? Over and over and over again. It's hard to think of how that happens in a prebiotic world. Then we have to characterize it. So we use this technique called NMR. NMR, you buy this instrument for like $1.5 million and you can discern molecular structure here. The problem is that in nature, how does it discern molecular structure? It's very hard to discern molecular structure even with these instruments. And so this is what we wrote in a paper to prove to our peers that we got the molecule that we said we got. You've got to do this. You've got to go through this. And you've got to write a, you know, all the different techniques that you use and the different peaks that you saw. But that's only page one. This was page two. And so you've got to go through this. Molecular structure determination is very, very hard. How does that happen in nature? Nobody knows in a prebiotic world. In a postbiotic world, in, in, in where we have biology, once, once biology is upon us, then you have all these enzymes which check structure. We know how that is done. And the the molecule that is checking the structure is always more complex than the molecule that it's checking. The checker is more complex than the the thing that it's checking. We have no idea how this would ever happen in prebiotic world. And nobody else does either. Nobody! So if they say they do, they're wrong or they are lying. That's the status of origin of life research. In this paper, making these nanocars, there were 281 pages of supplemental characterization data that looked like that. 281 pages, just to prove the structure. Yeah, that's what chemists do. I mean, that's why I hire students, and they go in the trenches, and I just sit back and say, go do that, and I surf the internet all day. They do the work. We made this nanocar with this motor, and this motor had a problem, though it only rotated at 1.8 revolutions per hour. Not very fast. But what we did is we pulled out that sulfur atom and we closed it down to a five-member ring and then it could go with three million rotations per second, faster than any macroscopic motor could ever go. So how do you pull out a sulfur atom? There is no way to do that. No known way to do that, whether it be chemically or enzymatically. Not known. So how did we do it? We went back to step one to rebuild this motor. That's exactly what nature would have to do if it makes a mistake and it says, Oh, this doesn't work very well. Too bad! You can't fix it. You've got to go back to step one. Well, that was two billion years ago. Not my problem. That's the chemical synthesis problem. Now you have the assembly problem. How do you assemble things now? A protocell is a self-organized, endogenously ordered spherical collection of lipids proposed as a stepping stone to the origin of life. <clears throat> so that's what they call a protocell. Most so-called protocell assembly experiments in origin of life research can be summed up by a protocol analogous to this. So no matter what you send me, it's going to fit into this. This is the assembly problem. we dealt with the synthesis problem. This is the assembly problem. Now you, even if you had all the chemicals, I'll give you all the chemicals, now make a cell. Oh, well, you know, the lipid bilayer you could always make. This is what was told to me by a geneticist. Oh, well, you know, you could make the lipid bilayer. So I started studying lipid bilayers. Then I met Tony Futterman, who just spoke earlier today. I mean, this is hard stuff. So what they do is they purchase homochiral diacyl lipids from a chemical company, or they synthesize stereochemically scrambled lipids from smaller molecules. You add those lipids to water, and observe a small amount of it, for the simple and unexpected thermo, uh, the simple and expected thermodynamically driven assembly of those lipids into synthetic bilayer vesicles upon agitation. And sometimes the, re, the researchers will add other molecules that get engulfed inside this vesicle as it's forming. So you take it and you put it through shear and you can get this vesicle of these lipid bilayers that engulf water. Then you publish a paper claiming that synthetic vesicle is a protocell and suggestive of early forms of cellular life, Engage with the media to ramp up the hype and watch the layperson be misled. That's every one of them fits into this. So it's just a synthetic vesicle, but they call it a protocell. This is what the lipid bilayer in a cell looks like. It has proteins that are going through. The outer side is very different than the inner side. And these can't transfer unless you have enzymes which aren't on the scene yet because you haven't made any cells yet called flipases. But generally these stay in one side, these stay in another side. And then you have all these <clears throat> these sh- sugars hanging over the surface. So researchers have identified thousands of different lipid structures. So Tony said, said earlier today 40,000 have been identified. You know how many researchers use when they're trying to make theirs? Just one type. You can never have a functioning cell with one type. But when you mix types, it's much harder to get these, or they might try two, but they don't try thousands of different types. When making synthetic vessels, synthetic lipid bilayer membranes, mixtures with monoaceal lipids can destabilize the system. So nobody knows how those were avoided in, in a prebiotic system. Lipid bilayers surrounding subcellular organelles are different. So in other words, you have the lipid bilayer outside the cell, Then inside the cell you have the nucleus. That has its own bilayer, which is a different constitution than the outer bilayer. You have mitochondria with their own bilayer constituency. How did you get a different lipid bilayer constituency inside a grander one? Nobody's been able to do that in a laboratory. But they claim in some cave somewhere, all by itself, it formed. Lipid bilayers have this non-symmetric distribution. Protein-lipid complexes are required for the passive transport. So in other words, how do things get in and out of cells? You have these ionophores, you have proteins that allow certain things in and out. These are the gatekeepers. Without that, you can't have a cell. You can't just take a, a, a vesicle, like, like, like uh, uh, you know, it, it's analogous to oil and water and shaking it up and seeing those little beads. Not exactly that, but that's what they're calling protocells, something analogous to that. That's not a cell. All lipid bilayers have a vast number of carbohydrate appendages. Carbohydrates are saccharides or sugars, known as glycans. Those are these little glyco, glycans hanging off of a glycoprotein. These are essential for cell, cell regula, regulation. If, if you have just the A base in DNA, how many ways can you order six A bases? One way. A, 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 A. That's the only combination you can have. Well, if you just have six D-pyranosis, six of these sugars, these are small sugars, these six, the, the six pyranoses. how many ways could you arrange these? More than one trillion constitutional and stereochemical isomers. More than One trillion. You have much more information stored in sugars than you have in DNA. DNA is a small system in being able to store information compared to a sugar. And if you get even one constitutional element wrong, guess what happens? The cell dies. Dies. How did these get hooked up right? Sugar chemistry is so hard to do right. So hard to do right. Over one trillion possible combinations, you eliminate any class of carbohydrate from an organism, results in death. So how do origin of life researchers address this problem? They don't. They don't address it. Then there's the interactomes, the non-covalent interactions, interactive connectivity, functions within a cell. Nobody knows how a viable cell emerges from the massive combinatorial complexity. So in other words, the non-covalent interactions, this is how molecules communicate through non-covalent interactions. And that's all done by electrostatic interactions. Those transfer information at the speed of light, not ionic. Not ionic conductivity. This is at the speed of light, where one molecular orbital is affecting another neighboring molecular orbital. These have to be aligned just right. That's why when a cell divides, it takes this information and it then goes into two cells. But you can't dehydrate this thing and rehydrate it and get the thing to work because you've lost this interconnectivity. This is called the interactomes. People have estimated if you just merely consider the protein protein interactomes. We're not considering protein DNA, just protein protein, in a single yeast cell. That gives you an estimated 10 to the 79 billion combinations. That's huge. That's a big number, 10 to the 79 billion. Let's put that in perspective. 10 to the 90 is the estimated number of elemental particles in the universe. 10 to the 90. This is 10 to the 79 billion. That's a one with 79 billion zeros after it. You don't feel the difference between a million and a billion. People don't understand. This is 79 billion. A million seconds is 11 days. A billion seconds is 32 years. Feel the difference? Somebody tells you, wait a million seconds. All right, I'll wait 11 days. But they tell you, wait a billion seconds. You're going, to, you're going to be waiting 32 years. If you wait a trillion seconds, that's 32,000 years. The big difference. 10 to the 79 billion combinations of how these things can order. These have to be ordered precisely for information to transfer. That's called the interactomes. <coughs> Proto-Turkeys. Origin of Life protocell assembly is akin to buying 20 pounds of sliced turkey meat, adding a gallon of turkey broth, Warming, sticking in a few feathers, and suggesting that a live turkey will eventually come gobbling out, if given enough time, or that a proto-turkey, or extant turkey, has been synthesized. Isn't that ridiculous? Who would ever suggest that you can buy 30 pounds of sliced turkey meat, and turn it, put some broth, warm that up a little bit, stick in some fe- and if given enough time, it could happen? No, that's a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of nonsense. That's exactly what they're doing with a cell. We'll put some of this stuff together, and if given enough time, you know, that's a proto-cell. I've got a proto-turkey. How's that? <laughs> origin of information. Critical for life is the origin of information, DNA or RNA. This information is primary, and the matter upon which it's written is secondary. But we can't even get to the matter. The carbohydrates, the nucleic acids, lipids, and proteins. The synthesis problem is huge. But even if you had all the nucleic acids, you, it's hard to get those to hook up without enzymes. How do you get them to hook up? Nobody knows. And how do you get them to hook up in the right order? <laughs> That's too much. I mean, come on. Tour, you're just asking for too much. You're the one who told me... We're just right on the edge of making life. Try to build a cell even hypothetically. A dream team can't make a living cell even if given all the chemicals in homochiral form and all the informational code. So if I took a dream team and I gave them all the chemicals, homochiral form, and the informational code, they could not make a cell. You say, oh no, people have made synthetic cells. Well, what was made? In 2010, Craig Vendor's team copied an existing bacteria genome and transplanted it, transplanted it into another cell. Okay, so I go and I buy a Ford Mustang and I take out the little controlled computer chip that runs that car. And I look at that in my, in my clean room and I copy that chip. So I copied it, and I put it back in, and I stick it back in that in that car, and now the car runs. Can I say, I made that Mustang? I made it. I, made it. No, I didn't make it. I just copied what was there, and I stuck another piece. I copied a piece, and I stuck it back in, and it started running again. That's what Craig Venter's group did. In 2016, what they did is they knocked out all but 473 genes from an active dream genome and transplanted it into another cell, but that's not making a cell. Go ahead, try to make a cell. Find anybody who says we're on... Say, find any great scientist, say, if I gave you all the chemicals you wanted and even the informational code, I'll even give you all the DNA, all the RNA, I'll give you all the carbohydrates and whatever structure you want. Could you just pack those together into a cell? The answer would be no. All right. So what do people do when they write books for for people out there? So, So Regis wrote a book called What is Life? Investigating the nature of life in the age of synthetic biology. And here's what he wrote. Life began with little bags of garbage, random assortments of molecules doing some crude kind of metabolism. That is stage one. The garbage bags grow and occasionally split into two. And the ones that grow and split fastest win. That's his explanation. And that's the books that are fed to people, like you, as to explain how life was formed. Few Origin of Life researchers would state it so shamelessly. Nonetheless, little bags of garbage are precisely what they've been making. Those little bags of garbage have no more resemblance to living cells than a big bag of garbage resembles a horse. All right, so how did life begin? Jack Sawstack, in Nature. Nature. I mean, how many people here have articles in Nature? Probably not too many, right? This is hard to get an article in. This guy's a Nobel laureate. He writes just last year. If you think I'm pulling things from long ago, no, just last year he wrote, "How did life begin?" I saw this. So, hey, I want to know. All right. The early atmosphere had no oxygen and consisted mainly of nitrogen and carbon dioxide and smaller amounts of hydrogen, water, and methane. Okay. Lightning, asteroid impacts, ultraviolet light from the sun acted on the atmosphere to generate hydrogen cyanide, a compound of hydrogen, carbon, and nitrogen. Okay. Rain, raining into volcanic or crater lakes, the cyanide reacted with iron, brought up water circulating through the rocks. All right. The resulting iron cyanide compounds accumulated over time, building up into a concentrated stew of reactive chemicals. Okay, life as we know it requires RNA. Some scientists believe, oh, now we're going into their belief. Some scientists believe that RNA emerged directly from these reactive chemicals, nudged along by dynamic forces in the environment. In my world, we never use the term nudged. We don't know what nudged means. It's not in my chemical lexicon. It's not no. What do you mean nudged? Is that in it? You went, you went from this to RNA? Nobody knows. Nucleotides, the building blocks of RNA, eventually formed. Oh, cool. They joined together to make strands of RNA. They don't just join together. You need enzymes to hook these together. Some stages in this process are still not well understood. You think? One RNA was made, some strands of it became enclosed within tiny vesicles formed by spontaneous assembly of fatty acid lipids into membranes creating the first protocells. As the membranes incorporated more fatty acids, they grew and divided. At the same time, internal chemical reactions drove replication of encapsulated RNA. And here's the scheme from that article. He says simple sugars. By the way, these are not sugars. This is glycerin. This is ethylene glycol. Those are not sugars. I mean, the guy couldn't even get his sugar structures right. Then he says cyanide derivatives. I don't even... Is, I don't know what this is. I don't know what this is. Is this is, is this iron cyanide? I don't know what... I have no idea what this structure is. Cyanide I don't know what that is. Phosphate, okay. And then, boom, you made RNA. UV light drove the conversion. Phosphate, you got UV light. Heat. And then, boom, RNA, nothing. I thought, well, maybe I'm just just too hard on him. So I sent this to a colleague of mine, just a synthetic organic chemist, and he doesn't deal in origin of life, but he's a hardcore synthesis guy. He doesn't talk about origin of life. I said, what do you think of this? Do you understand this scheme? Here's what he wrote to me. This article is one of the worst I've ever read in a while. Strazek is weaving a story based on pure conjecture and wishful thinking, definitely not worthy of a journal like Nature. He provides no references for the processes that are, quote, well understood. He uses the term scientists believe based on no evidence whatsoever. In summary, this article is junk. I am astonished that he, as a Nobel laureate, can just gloss over chemical details. Are you the only one calling these guys out? That's what he wrote. Now, you need exquisite exactness. If you look at the chemistry where people have proposed where they're, they, they're able to make a chemical intermediate that's used, they, they, you have to have exquisite exactness here in the protocol. So this he talks about, you know, you change pH, you adjust it from 9 to back and forth. and Even then, all he made was racemic compounds, not homochiral, and not the compounds, just precursors to the compounds. And then when he wanted to use that for the next step, He didn't use it because it's too impure to use. He couldn't separate it. So he used normal synthetic means to make more of it to then bring it on the next step. That's cheating. Or he bought it. He says, well, I made the tiny little bit, but I can't use it because it's too impure. So I bought a lot of it. This is nonsense. Then he made even higher level extrapolations in the same paper. He said that all cellular subsystems could have arisen simultaneously through common chemistry. Huh? This, to be able to take molecules and build them into a system that collectively function together is really hard to do. That's what we do in nanotechnology. You know, we build, we we put all these molecules together and we get a functioning car. Really hard to do. All, all the cellular substance could have arisen simultaneously. (gasps) Through common chemistry? What is he talking about? All he made were some impure precursors, not even the actual molecules, let alone a subsystem. And this gets accepted into into uh, uh, nature chemistry. There is some evidence coming, where this is a paper that came out in Nature Communications, and th- this person, whom I don't know, Clemens Reichert, is calling some people out on this. He says such a pure such a pure chemical scenario is unrealistic. Pre- Prebiotically, but necessary. It says, prebiotic chemistry and human intervention. Further, the ideal experiment does not involve any human intervention. They're beginning to to get it. This came out just in December. How close have researchers come to making artificial life? Well, in November 2018, in in Science Magazine, it says, biologists create the most lifelike artificial cells yet. I was like, yeah, I want to see how far have we come? And they're quoting from this paper that came out in Nature Communications, Communication Quorum Sensing in Non-Living Mimetics of Eukaryotic Cells. So, he took semi-porous microcapsules of plastic, plastic mind you, he's not even dealing with a lipid bilayer, but plastic, plastic beads, from acryl- uh, acrylate polymerization containing clay. So he had clay inside, he polymerized these beads around it. Now, clay is positively charged, so then he added DNA, which he bought, and it diffuses in to... DNA is negatively charged, it, it, it sticks to the positively charged clay. Nothing amazing there. And, and so then, then he adds other reagents that diffuse in, and he adds... So all the requisite ribosomes, mRNA... Enzymes and reagents were purchased or extracted from living systems and then added to the medium, and those, two permeated into the plastic capsules because they're semi-porous. You add all these reagents together, it is known you're going to get protein synthesis. This happens all the time. So he saw protein synthesis, and those proteins leach out and go into the neighboring ones around them and not into the ones that are further away in the dish. So he called that quorum sensing. The ones that are nearby are hearing the information, getting... No, it's just normal, normal diffusion. The ones that are closer get more exposure to the things that are leaking out of that. But it's called quorum sensing. The chemistry of exogenously added reagents will work regardless of the container, whether it be a semi-porous microcapsule in a test tube or in a large-scale industrial production tank. It is done every day in laboratories and industries around the world. So it is far from the press hype claim of gene expression and communication rivaling that of living cells. There is no rivalry here. That these are the, the most lifelike artificial cells yet only serves to underscore the point. Nobody has ever come close to generating a cell. And they were, this wasn't life. This was just doing chemistry that we do every day in the laboratory in a test tube. They did it in a semi porous bead. That's all they did. They said, this is, this is, this is life. I mean, it's just just, just that far from life. That's nonsense. Fool's gold. Alchemists used to try to make gold by turning iron into gold. And what they learned is that you could add a bunch of sulfur to gold. It would start to turn, I'm sorry, a bunch of sulfur to iron. It would start to turn yellow and eventually it would look like gold. Now they knew it wasn't gold because it didn't have the same ductility, didn't have the same melting point. But don't you think the alchemist community would say, why are you being so hard on us? You know, we're 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 on the right path. I mean, look at it. It looks a lot like gold. We're on the right path. The problem is you can add sulfur to iron all you want. It's never going to change into gold. You think you're on the right path, but you're not. You're so far from gold, it's never going to happen. You can't change iron into gold unless you do a nuclear process where you change the number of protons, which is very expensive to do. So just looking like oh you're nowhere close. In 1775, the French Academy in Paris refused to entertain any further proposals for perpetu- perpetual motion machines. The devices just did not work as advertised. The mature science of thermodynamics, which gave us a theoretical account for why the perpet- perpetuum mobile schemes failed, lay 100 years in the future. Likewise, origin of life research seems sadly adrift and its inability to advance bears witness to that fact. So I'm calling for a moratorium on origin of life research. We need, we need to address these hurdles such as life's code, routes to complex assemblies, mass mass throughput in synthetic reactions. Many things have to be addressed before we, we go on. I think we should just stop. And people say, why stop? Because I'm not saying a cessation. But just a moratorium. Stop and let's redefine where we're going because nothing has changed since Miller-Urey. A big announcement came out from NASA a couple of weeks ago that the amino acids had been f- uh, found in, in the, these these hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. Well, big whoop. I mean, I mean, Miller did the same thing in 1952. You got a bunch of amino acids, and what did that do? Nothing. So now you have amino acids. Now what? Now what? How do you get amino acids to hook together? You need enzymes. So, have so-called scientific facts ever been shown to be wrong? Yeah, the Big Bang. The Big, uh, the, the Big Bang came along in 1964. Before that, it was the steady-state approximation, the steady-state theory that, that said that, that the universe always was. Darwinian theory to punctuated equilibrium. Darwinian theory said that there were small gradual changes. Then in 1972, that all changed to punctuated equilibrium. Climate change killed off the dinosaurs, but that changed in 1980 when it became due to asteroid impact, the Alvarez hypothesis. How long ago did dinosaurs die off? 66 million years ago they died off. Well, in 2007, Mary Higby Schweitzer, Paleontologists in NC State start, started finding all this soft tissue, organic matter, in dinosaur fossils, and then in 2015, even finding finding a, 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 a collagen and and red blood cells. I mean, science is, is it's science. So-called scientific facts are wrong all the time. So claims that mislead the patient, taxpayer are unhelpful and the public will eventually distrust scientific claims even into other fields. Uncorrected or unfounded assertions jeopardize science beyond a singular field, especially since there's mounting distrust of higher education in general. Condescending comments toward the public or a student, if they will not embrace our conjectures as facts, will lead to continued division between scientists and non-scientists, which can yield public reluctance to fund our research. We must tell the truth with specificity. If it is a fact, say it. If it's not a fact, say it. Blackballing scientists if they bear legitimate legitimate nonconformist views by excluding them from professional societies and academies, withholding their funding or denying them tenure is anti-scientific and it will retard the advancement of science. Scientific facts versus the Bible. So now I've ended with with, with uh with the technical part, I'm going to start looking at, at bringing in the Bible now. A scientific fact. Water has two hydrogens and an oxygen. That will be the same anywhere in the, in the universe. That's the same. That won't change. You may have isotopomers, but that won't change. That's a fact. There has never been discordance between scientific facts and stable statements in the Bible, so there's no need to reconcile them. So-called scientific facts, which are really theories, are constantly changing on the order of decades, or certainly on the order of a century. So trying to twist the Bible to fit with the scientific theory is a frustrating endeavor. Because remember, the science keeps changing. Don't let professors with their bold claims of facts upset you. Theories or conjectures are not facts. But unfortunately and shamefully, many professors themselves do not make the necessary distinction. This leads to confusion of generations of students and even professors themselves. I am telling you, I have professor colleagues that don't even understand this stuff because they've so bought into this. I give them my paper to read. They say, oh, you know, evolution has been proven. Uh, I just... You read a paper on origin of life, abiogenesis. It had nothing to do with evolution. They, they, they don't even know the difference. They don't even know the difference. And this, this, this is a professor in evolutionary biology. These guys are clueless. Okay. I'm going to close with this slide, to To the student inundated with misinformation. This is the word that I have for you. Deuteronomy 13, verse 3 and 4. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his commandments and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. You will go into institutions and hear things. And you'll hear things and you'll hear things that are critical and that may be upsetting to your faith. Don't listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. God allows that to test your faith, to see if you really love him with all your heart and with all your soul. You must revere the Lord and hold him fast. And with that, I'll close. Thank you.